Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Leave it to Beaver's Eddie Haskell is one of TV's most memorable characters. Described as being so polite, it's almost un-American. His politeness was just a facade for his true, untrustworthy, and unrepentant self. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this message entitled The Parable of Two Sons, which covers Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Perimeter Church this morning. We're glad you're here with us this Labor Day. Uh, We're going on a bit of a detour from our series in 1 Corinthians. Randy is preaching at Brookhaven Presbyterian Church this morning, but he will be back next week. And when he does, he's going to take the next two weeks and he's going to take us through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, That text of scripture that deals with the love of God in Christ. And he wanted to make sure uh, that I encourage you, especially if you are young in life or young in the faith, uh, this, it's important for every single believer, for every Christian, but especially for you. This is a message he thinks you really need to hear. So we'd love for you to come and to join us these next two weekends. This morning, though, we're digging into Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23. And since we're parachuting into this book with no context, let me just set the stage for you for just a moment with what's happening. Jesus has just ridden into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of crowds, all of them saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. He's marched into the temple. He's turned over the tables. He has declared to all who will listen that that is not just God's house, it's his house, which should have shocked them. The blind are coming into his presence and he's giving them sight. The lame are walking into the courts and then they are, excuse me, are being carried into the courts and then walking out in their own power. And there are children running around Jesus' feet as all of this is happening and they are shouting his praises and everything that's going on around him. Everything is proclaiming to all who would hear the king that God promised. The king that God said I would bring to my people who will redeem them in full. That king is here. And he is in his temple and in his home if you have eyes to see. And the one group, the one group that should be most excited, the chief priests and the elders, they're the group that's anything but. They want Jesus silenced. They want him gone. And so while the children are praising Jesus, they show up to challenge Jesus. And Jesus responds with a challenge of his own. A challenge that comes to a head in the parable that we're going to be looking at today. And it's a parable that begs two questions. Who is it that actually enters the kingdom of heaven? And second, how is it that they get inside? Let's read the text together, starting in verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven? from man. And the chief priests and the elders discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say to us, why then did you not believe him? 
But if we say, for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And his son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The chief priests and the elders said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is God's word. We pray for us. Father, we ask this morning as we come to a text that is hard, Lord, a text that lays our hearts bare in ways that are uncomfortable, in ways, Lord, that maybe we would even resist. Lord, we pray that you would take this text, and Lord, you would use it, not just to lay us bare, but Lord, to give us eyes to see the God who never hurts his people unless he intends to heal them. And Lord, I pray that we would experience that healing in full through the work of your Son. Speak now, through your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in college, I've mentioned before, I was a part of a ministry called Campus Outreach. And every summer, Campus Outreach would take us on this thing called Summer Beach Project. You would go to the beach with a bunch of different people that were all a part of this ministry, and you would experience, for two months, a sort of ministry training experience. You would learn how to share your faith, you would learn how to do discipleship, so that when the summer was over, you could go back to your college campus and you could try to win your lost friends to Christ. Now, at the end of each one of these summers, there would always be some kind of celebration. My second summer, that celebration was supposed to be a dance. We were supposed to go to this gymnasium that a local church was letting us use, and we were going to turn down the lights and turn up the music and put on our goodwill finest and basically dance like goofy idiots because that's what we were. And I was excited about it because at the time, I really enjoyed dancing. My wife does not enjoy it as much, so I do it much less. Uh, I'm bad, that's why. And we're going to this party, and I remember walking in the gymnasium door, and as I'm looking to my right, I see this bar. There's people milling around, there's glasses clinking, there's music playing. In the back of my head, in my Beach Project evangelistic zeal, there is this little voice saying, Caleb, somebody should go over there and share the gospel. And I remember thinking immediately, well, that's not going to be me. And then walking inside the gym and trying to ignore it. But the problem was, is it wouldn't go away. It was like the Holy Spirit was just poking and poking and poking until finally I said, all right, I'll go. I'll walk across the street, but Lord, you have to open up a door because I don't want to do this. And so I walk across the street in my goodwill finest, dressed like an insane person, and I walk over to this bar and I see what I think is the bouncer. He's greeting everybody at the front door and there's an open seat right next to him and so I plop myself down and I say, hi, my name is Caleb. And the next thing I know, I'm in a conversation about the merits of Steven Seagal. 
and how great his martial arts movies are. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, this went easier than I thought it would, but now I've got this problem. I like Steven Seagal, and he likes Steven Seagal, but the problem is, is how do I get from Steven Seagal to Jesus? You know, this is going to require like the greatest Jesus juke that I could possibly imagine. And so I'm internally going, Lord, help me. You got me this far, but this, I don't know how to do this. And all of the sudden, the bouncer goes, and you know why I like martial arts movies? Because they remind me of my Savior, Jesus. And my head snaps around, and I go, what? And then he says, all my life I ran from him. I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't want to go near him, but he loved me, and he chased me down, and he saved me, and I want anyone and everyone I meet to know the love of my Savior. And I sat there, and I began to look around, and I began to realize that there were some things that had escaped my attention. First, this was a very strange bar, because now that I was paying attention, there was actually no alcohol here at all. And there were a bunch of kids with braces holding iced coffee drinks who were all milling around laughing. And the reason there were kids with braces holding iced coffee drinks was because this was a coffee shop that a church owned and used as an outreach to neighborhood kids. (laughs) And the bouncer at the table who I sat beside was a youth volunteer who came every week to help them out. Things were not what they seemed to be. They were not what they appeared. Jesus, in a much more serious way, he is saying the exact same thing. He's saying things are not what they seem. They're not what they appear. And as we look at this text, so many of us, even if you're not a Christian, even if you haven't ever really been to church, most of us are familiar enough with this story that instinctually we read it, we go religious leaders equal bad guy, Jesus equals the good guy. But put yourself for a moment in the shoes of a first century Jew. That's not the way you would originally read this text. Who are the chief priests and the elders? They're your pastors. These are the men that if you were looking for someone to tell you how to live the godly life, these were the ones you looked to. If you were struggling in your marriage, these were the ones you went to for counseling. If you needed your child circumcised, these were the ones who did it. These were the men who brought your sacrifices before the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins. These were the ones that God had appointed as your representative to walk through the temple courts into the one place only one man once a year could go and intercede on your behalf in the presence of the living God. That's who these men are. And if you were to be asked who enters the kingdom of God, you would go, it's them. If anyone gets in, it's them. And Jesus says things are not what they seem. They are not what they appear to be. Because in my kingdom, there are only two kinds of people. There's those who have repented and believed in the Son. And there are those who have not. And everything hinges on which one you are. And what should catch all of our attention is it's not the people that you expect. And it is a warning, just as necessary today as it was in Jesus' day. And Jesus starts in verse 28 with the story of two sons. A father comes to his two sons and he gives them both the same command. He says in verse 28, Son, go 
and work in the vineyard today. It's not, son, if you have some time and you're not hanging out with your friends or you don't have plans for later today or, you know, if you feel like it, come and join me. What does he say? It's an urgent double command. He says, son, go now at this moment, no delay, no questions, no excuses, and work in my vineyard. It's not a suggestion. It's not a maybe if you can. This is a full-on, your dad is saying this to you, you'd better hop to it. And notice how the sons respond. The first son, he's the picture of a broken rebel. His response is defiance. Verse 29, he says, I will not. No excuse. No, sir, I'd love to, but there's some things that have come up. He just looks at his dad and he says what could only be an echo of the son in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal sons basically says, you are not my father and I am not your son. You have no authority over me. You have no power over me. You can tell me what to do all you want, but I will not go. I will go my way, I will follow my plans, and I will follow my desire. This is not wishy-washy disobedience. This is blatant rebellion, the kind that if your child said this to you, would cause you to probably get fairly angry. In the ancient Near East, this would get you stoned. But notice what happens next. It says that the son who said, I will not, afterward he changed his mind and he went. That word Jesus uses there where he says, afterward he changed his mind, that, it's the same word that shows up in verse 32. When Jesus says to the chief priests and the elders, that you saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes entering the kingdom of God because of the preaching of John the Baptist, but you did not afterward change your mind. It's the word that you see all through your Bibles translated as repent. That's the first son. The first son, he is one who is rebellious and defiant, but when the father walks away, he suddenly sees his sin. He realizes what he has done. He realizes that he has no claim on the Father's love, that he has nothing in him that would merit him anything, that he doesn't deserve to be a part of his family anymore, that he doesn't have right or claim or honor, and instead that all he has is shame, but there is something in his father. There is something in his dad that tells him that he can still come home, that his place is not gone that there is forgiveness in his arms, and so he changes his mind, and he goes. And I think it's this. Notice what the father said. He didn't say, son, or excuse me, he didn't say, go work in my vineyard, and then you will be my son. He said, you are my son. Now go and work in my vineyard. He's a father who is extending to a son that he knows is a rebel a status he does not deserve. And in the face of that grace, his son is broken and he changes his mind and he comes home. The second son, he's a little different. 
If the first son is a broken rebel, the second son, he's a hardened one. And at first glance, it actually looks like he's the son you'd want around. He's polite. He says in verse 30, to his father's command, the same command, son, go today and work in my vineyard. He says, I go, sir. No delay. Promptly, I will do it. He's respectful. He's got a smile on his face. He's like the Chick-fil-A guy in the drive-thru who holds up your bag and says, my pleasure, sir. He's the son that we all want, the son my father wanted. When I was a kid, my dad was adamant that if I was speaking to an adult, I had to use sir and ma'am. Didn't matter what it was, didn't matter if they were just a little bit older, it was yes sir, yes ma'am, no sir, no ma'am. And if I didn't, this was my dad's rule. I immediately had to drop to the ground and do 25 military style push-ups. Not butt wiggle push-ups, not like I shimmied my hips, but chest to the deck, full arm extension, erect, strict, lined up torso, I was five. <laughs> and the result of this was two things. The first, I got exceptionally good at push-ups for a five-year-old, and I won some kindergarten contests, which was kind of cool. The bad side of this was this. I learned to say sir and ma'am to everybody. I mean, it didn't matter who you were. You could be my age, and I'd be going, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And people were looking at me like, what is wrong with this kid? I was so polite, it was unnerving. And the reason was not because I was actually polite. I didn't actually feel those things. Why did I do it? I had a conditioned response that I had learned to do because I wanted my dad to be proud of me and my dad to approve of me, and I was afraid of the consequences. That's this son. He says, I go, sir, but then what does he do? He does not go. It's a radically different response. But there's something else missing in this son. Something that I missed the first few times I read this text, but I think is absolutely essential if we're going to understand it. What is the one thing that the first son does that the second son never does? Only one of them only one of them ever changes their mind. Did you notice that? This son said, I go, sir. But he never had any intention of going. One son may be a broken rebel. This one's a hardened one. And Jesus takes the knife and he begins to press it in and he looks at the chief priests and the elders and he asks them one question that can have only one response. Which son did the will of the Father? And it's a response they don't want to give because they know it's the first. There are two sons who represent two different paths. One that leads to the kingdom of heaven and the other that leaves us standing outside. And the first is the path of repentance and faith. In verse 31, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. Now we know 
Even just listening to this text, in our culture, if you say those two classes of people, we kind of understand the idea that these are people that are looked down upon in the first century world. We would probably say, well, we would admit they're low class. If you were a Jew or a Gentile, you would look at a tax collector and a prostitute, and you would say, that is not the kind of person I want to associate myself with. But remember something. Jesus isn't just, he's not talking to Jews and to Gentiles, he's talking to Jews. And to Jews, tax collectors and prostitutes, they're not just social outcasts. They're not just low class, these are spiritual outcasts. These are people who were viewed as unclean and impure, who were barred from God's people and barred from God's presence who in every way, shape, or form is seen as those who are outside. The tax collector was a man who was seen as an enemy of God's people, a man who, though he was Jewish by birth and Jewish by descent, had aligned himself with the Roman oppressor because he loved money more than his brothers and sisters. A man seen as so unclean, so impure, that according to rabbinic tradition, if that tax collector so much as walked through your front door by a hair's breadth, not only did you become unclean, but your entire house and everything in it became unclean. The prostitute's the same. The prostitute was a picture to Israel, not just of physical adultery, they were a picture of spiritual adultery as well. Of a people who loved the things of this world and the desires of their heart more than the God who had saved them for himself, a class of people viewed as so unclean and so impure that Deuteronomy 23 says that their offerings were not acceptable inside of the temple of God because they were viewed as an abomination to God. If ever there was someone on the outside, it's them. Barred from God's people and barred from God's presence. And yet Jesus in this text, he says, the people that you despise. The people whose offerings are an abomination. The ones that you would not even let cross the threshold of your home. Those are the ones who are coming inside of my kingdom. If Jesus said that the child molester the one whose house you looked up on Google so you could point it out to your kids and say, don't go near that place. If Jesus said they were entering the kingdom of God before you, it could not be more shocking. Jesus is saying, the ones that you look down upon, that you look on as so unclean, so dangerous, so filthy, you would not let them grace the doorstep of your home the ones you would never dream of entering the presence of God, they are actually the ones who are making it in before you. And he's saying this to the pastors. And here's why. It's not because they were good. It's not because they somehow lived up to God's expectations and did enough good to outweigh the bad. No, they are coming inside because Jesus says they heard John the Baptist Say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they saw him point to the Son of God, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they heard in that proclamation not only their sin, but they heard the voice of the Father in this parable who called them sons before they had ever repented. They heard the promise of one who could take even people so unclean 
that all the other people around them would cross the street to avoid being touched by them, being stained by them, who could take them and wash them, not just with water, but with the blood of a lamb who could take their sins and cast them as far from them as the east is from the west. They heard the promise of one who could take even people like him, even people like them, and make them clean. Not because of anything they had done, but because of what he did for them. And so they saw, they heard, and they changed their minds. They believed. But Jesus looks at the chief priests and the elders, and he says, but that's not you. You're not the ones on the path of repentance and faith. You're the ones who are still on the path of rebellion. And it's a path that on the surface doesn't look like it at all, does it? That was the case in 2001 with Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen was a distinguished member of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He had been a part of that organization for 24 years. A man who was so respected, so well thought of, that he was tasked with finding Russian and Soviet moles who were hiding inside the United States intelligence community. His job was to find the spies and to suss them out so they could be brought to justice. And not only was he a patriot, but he was also a devout family man, a devout Catholic who went to mass every single day, who took his kids to Catholic school, who tried to convert his co-workers to Catholicism. And if you were to ask him, what is it that is most important to you? He would say faith, family, and country, and in that order. But here was the problem. Robert Hansen had a secret. The man who looked like the uber-patriot, the man who was supposed to be finding the Russian and the Soviet moles hiding in the United States intelligence community, he was actually the mole himself. A man who for 21 years had been selling United States military intelligence to the Russian government to the tune of $1.4 million in what was considered the largest security breach in United States history. And not only was he revealed to be a traitor, but this devout Catholic family man was also revealed to be on the recesses of the internet a sexual deviant who betrayed not only his faith but his family. He looked like one thing. His actions revealed him to be something else entirely. Jesus, Jesus is saying to the chief priests and the elders, that's what's happening to you right now. You say that you serve the God of Israel. You unroll the scrolls and you read from God's word and you proclaim the mercy and the promises of God to his people. You teach the law. You tell them what it looks like to follow Yahweh. You make the sacrifices in the temple. You lift your hands in praise and you invite others to do so too. You wear the priestly garments and you look on the surface to all the world like godly men who are surely going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But there is one major problem. Your actions are revealing you to be something else entirely. When John the Baptist came preaching... You didn't do what the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. You didn't confess your sin and look to the Messiah and hope in him for forgiveness. Instead, you just stood there 
When you saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes repenting and changing their minds and believing in him, and you saw them begin to associate with Jesus, you still stood there. And in fact, you began to get angry. And now you are standing in the presence of the one in whom all the promises of God are being fulfilled. You have just heard the shouts of the crowd going, Hosanna to the son of David. You have watched the blind receive their sight. You have seen the lame walk. You hear children singing my praises. And you hear the good news preached to the poor. And you cannot muster up one answer to one very simple question. By whose authority did John speak? And you can't answer it because you're afraid. You're afraid that if you say his authority came from heaven, that you'll be exposed for what you actually are, not godly men who are certainly going to be in the kingdom of heaven, but instead those who are rebels, just like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, because you have resisted him every step of the way. And you are afraid that if you say from man, that you will lose the crowd and you will lose the thing that you actually love more than God and that is your status. And so you say, we don't know. Jesus says, you're, you're the second son. You're the son who said, I go, sir, but never had any intention of going. You are rebels just like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and what you are is revealed by your actions and it is a danger. It's a danger that presents itself to us even today because it hides in church pews. It hides behind nice clothes and nice words and nice hair. It hides itself behind well-worn Bibles and invitations to church. It's the danger that we run the risk of running towards every single time we sit as we just did a few moments ago and we start confessing sins which in our hearts we have absolutely no intention of turning from. When we say, Father, I'm so sorry that I've not loved my neighbor but we have no plans on walking outside and doing anything remotely differently. It's the danger that shows itself every single time we say what the chief priests and the elders did every day, God, I am wholly yours, but only so long as it does not cost me the approval of men. Only so long as it doesn't cost me financially. Only so long as it doesn't cost me my preferences or my dreams or the things that I hope for or the things that I love. Only so long as it does not mean that I have to say that I need you just as much as the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the child molesters and the broken and the least and the lost. Only so long as I don't have to give up my own claim to being good enough in myself. And what Jesus would say to every single one of us, if that is you, because it cuts me, is things are not what they seem. We are all rebels. And there are two sons who represent two paths, which means there's only one question. Which son are we? Are we the son who said, I will not, 
but in the face of the Father's mercy changed his mind, who ran down the path of repentance and faith. Or we the son who says, I go, sir, but never had any intention of going. Jesus says both are rebels. Both are in need. But only one of them will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a hard text. But I don't want you to miss the beauty and the glory and the goodness of what Jesus is saying here. Because why did the tax collectors and the prostitutes flock to him? It wasn't because Jesus proclaimed their sin. They knew their sin. They felt the cost and the consequence of it every time one of the chief priests and the elders walked across the street to stay out of their way. It was because they heard in the preaching of John the Baptist and in the preaching of Jesus the voice of the Father in this parable who called them sons before they had ever repented. The Father who in Ephesians 1 says, in love I predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Who loved them while they were still sinners and they saw in Jesus the son this parable is missing. The son who said, I go, sir, and then actually did it and did it for you whose willingness was revealed in his actions when he sat in a garden and to the command of the Father said, not my will, but yours be done, even if it means going to die on a cross. They saw the God who redeems rebels and redeems them in his Son, and they saw that glory, and they saw that beauty, and they heard that invitation, and they changed their minds, and they believed. That same God calls to us this morning. To you who all your lives have said, I will not. Who have said it again and again and again and who find yourself sitting there feeling stained and impure and ashamed and guilty. Jesus says, come to me. I am the one who will make you whole. I am the one who when you said I will not, I said I go, sir, and I actually did it, and I did it in your place and for your sins that you would be washed with something better than water, the blood of the Lamb of God slain for your sin. My kingdom is made up of tax collectors and prostitutes and child molesters, the broken, the wounded, the hurt, and the weary. And to those of us who have said, I go, sir, but have never actually gone. Jesus says, so long as you hold fast to your own goodness, so long as you hold fast to your mask, so long as you think that you can trust yourself, then the doors of my kingdom remain barred to you. But catch this. It's not an indictment only. It's an invitation. In verse 31, Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they are entering the kingdom of God before you, but it doesn't say without you. 
the father of this parable. He calls to you in the words of the psalmist and says, Today, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Come home. You're all rebels. But I am the God who redeems them. And I have redeemed them in my son. The son who said, I go, sir. And then actually did it. And did it for you. Amen. And pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, with our thoughts racing and our hearts questioning, Lord, where it is, some of us, maybe where we stand. And Lord, I pray that you would take this text, Lord, not just the conviction of it, not just the challenge of it, but Lord, the comfort that comes in knowing there is a Savior who can take even the most stained and make them clean, who has stood in our place for our sins, and who presents us before his Father, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Take our hearts, and may we never be a people who say, I go, sir, but have no intention of going. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.